My name is uh, Surya Kauri, and uh, uh, my full name is Venkat Surya Narasimhan Kauri, and turns out in the US, you cannot put that name in social security system. So I become Surya Kauri. Um, I'm particularly uh, uh, first grateful that I'm given this opportunity to uh, present in a conference like this, so thank you uh, so much for that opportunity. Um, I need to mention that I'm particularly uh, thrilled because I'm virtually, at least virtually, coming back to my alpha major after 30 years, so it's a wonderful experience. Um, <clears throat> I'll get started. So the topic is, did Indian intellectual tradition hold the belief that all knowledge of practice is contained in Shastras? Uh, this is sort of an underlying theme in Pollock's 1985 Shastras paper, and Pollock says yes to the question. Now Pollock says that this belief crippled Indian intellectual creativity. He says that practice was reduced to merely discovering knowledge that's already present in Shastras. Pollock calls Shastras theories of practice, and he's clearly distinguishing between uh, Veda Shastram and uh, Shastras of practice. Uh, so these Shastras of practice, he says, uh, are, uh, he calls them theories of practice, and he says they restrain practice of theory. So in this paper, we critique Pollock's reasoning in answering the above question. So here is an outline of uh, this morning's presentation. The critique focuses on four excerpts from Pollock's paper. These four excerpts together form a specific argument that Pollock puts forward. Now Pollock's argument can be presented in a simple form like this. Claim one was believed by intellectuals to be true. Claim two was believed to be true, therefore follows Pollock's conclusion. We follow that argument by giving a refutation as follows. Claim one was not believed to be true. Claim two was not believed to be true. Therefore, Pollock's conclusion does not follow. And we finally end the uh, presentation with a conclusion that Pollock should have actually reached. So well, before we get into the details, uh, let's take a quick uh, summary view of Pollock's argument. This argument, if true, it uncovers a particular belief underlying Indian intellectual tradition. So claim number one is all knowledge pre-exists in eternal text. Claim number two is Shastras are eternal texts for their practice. Now combining these two claims, he comes to the conclusion that all knowledge of practice pre-exists in Shastras. Here, of course, when I say Shastras, I'm only referring to Shastras of practice. Now, Pollock does not say anywhere that these claims are actually true in an objective sense. So, trying to come up with counterexamples to refute those claims is not going to help us refute his argument. So, what is important to Pollock 
Pollock's argument is that Indian intellectuals actually believe that these claims are true and therefore practically live by the conclusion. So, for us to challenge Pollock's argument, then we have to actually falsify the reasoning he uses to establish that Indian intellectuals believe those claims to be true. So that's what um, our approach will focus on. Now, this claim is so far-reaching that it kind of echoes throughout this paper, and we'll take a look at a few uh, of the uh, statements that he makes in his paper. For example, uh, he says, uh, under the relationship between uh, theory and practice, Shastra and Prayoga, are diametrically opposed between the Sanskritic culture and what we find in the West. He says all Indian learning presents itself largely, so he's not saying every time, but largely as commentary on the primordial Shastras. Likewise, he says there is no practical value for experience, experiment, invention, discovery, and innovation they pretty much become meaningless. He says that knowledge acquisition simply amounts to arriving at a closer and more faithful approximation to the divine Shastras. And he also says that there is simply no scope for progress through innovation. Uh, these are pretty uh, far-reaching statements based on a very weak argument and, and this seems to be a general trend in his approach. He likes to make universal claims, which is always a troublesome thing in an argument, but he, that, that's what he does. So, we'll take a look at how Pollock first arrives at those two, two claims that he makes uh, before we start the refutation. Let's look at claim number one first. All knowledge pre-exists in eternal texts. And Pollock presents this claim during his uh, discussion of Sarkaryavada theory of causation. Uh, to quickly say what it is in his words, all material uh, pre-exists in some form because material cannot be created or destroyed. When we see a part, it is really just a name and a form of clay from which it is made. In other words, part, which is the effect in his, in the cause, the clay. Now, so far so good. And one could even extend this to say that not only the effect, even the cause of knowledge exists in the cause. That's perfectly fine for us in uh, explaining Sarkariwada. Uh, but Pollock infers more from this. He says, as a part, for example, must pre-exist in the clay, so knowledge must pre-exist in something. Then he says, we ourselves do not create knowledge, but merely bring it to manifestation from the textual materials in which it lies concealed from us. Now, uh, while we are wondering where this word textual material comes from, he makes a reference to Sankara's Bhasya on Brahma Sutra uh, 2.1.18, where Sankara 
uh, discusses at length uh, the Sarkarivada uh, theory. Claim number two says that Sastras are eternal texts for knowledge of practice. Now, if Sastras claim to be eternal texts and people believe, then that uh, suits Pollock's argument. Now, uh, Pollock presents Charita Samhita as an example of such a Sastra, and Pollock actually presents what seems to be a very cogent reasoning, uh, and it goes as follows. Uh, he says, Pollock uh, is quoting from uh, Charita Samhita, a small a brief quote. He says, starting point in the knowledge is authoritative instruction. At the next step, this authoritative knowledge has to be critically examined by perception and inference. Now, without there being some knowledge obtained from authoritative instruction, what is there for one to critically examine by perception and inference? When he reads this passage, he understands this to mean authoritative instruction first is more important than perception and inference. Second thing is perception and inference have only one role and that is examining knowledge that is contained in authoritative instruction. And this falls exactly along the lines he is trying to portray and uh, claim number two. Um, Pollock also presents a, a specific argument in relation to Charka Samhita uh, using its own words. And this reasoning too goes quite cogently and it goes this way. Charka Samhita is an authoritative instruction. It holds that authoritative instruction is a pramana. Now, pramana is an independent means of knowledge. That is, a pramana cannot depend on other pramanas as its means of knowledge. But authoritative instruction can be ultimately traced to knowledge acquired by people by means of perception and inference. In other words, authoritative instruction cannot be a pramana. So to qualify as a valid pramana, Charaka Samhita, the authoritative instruction, has no choice but to claim that it is beginningless. So for that reason, Charaka Samhita has no choice but to claim divine origin. And then he says how Charaka Samhita actually traces its origin to Brahma. Thus, Charaka Samhita claims to be an eternal text of its domain. So these two sort of explain how he arrives at claim number two. A quick recap before we move into our refutation. So claim number one is all knowledge pre-exists in eternal text. Claim number two, Shastras are eternal texts for their practice of their domain. And the conclusion is all knowledge of practice pre-exists in Shastras. And if it pre-exists in Shastras, then all we have to do is simply search for that knowledge in those Shastras. We have really no need for any other worldly information. So all Indian learning presents itself largely as commentary on the primordial Shastras. Next we go into refutation of uh, Pollock's argument. Claim number one, that all knowledge exists in text is wrong. 
Satkari Vada does not say anywhere that all knowledge pre-exists in text. Now, according to Satkari Vada, material cannot be created or destroyed. Therefore, all material pre-exists in some form. However, we cannot extend this logic to knowledge and say that all knowledge has to pre-exist in some form. Satkarya Vada does not require knowledge to exist in some tangible form. More specifically, it doesn't have to exist in any textual form or written form or verbal form. Now, Polak refers to Brahma Sutra uh, 2.1.18 and in that context, he inserts the word texture and he also refers to Sankara's uh, Bhasya on Satkaryavada in this particular uh, sutra. Now, if you look at what that sutra actually says, and I'm using Gambhirananda's translation of Sankara's Bhasya, it says, from reasoning and another Upanishadic text. Yeah, we see the word text right there, and it says, from reasoning and another Upanishadic text. But we cannot infer that this sutra is saying knowledge comes from reasoning and another Upanishad text. Um, to clarify exactly what it means in its context, Gandhirananda specifies within parentheses the pre-existence and non-difference of the effect are established. So pre-existence of effect in the cause and non-difference of effect and the cause are established from reasoning and another Upanishad, Upanishad text. That's the way Gandhirananda wants us to read it. Now, his interpretation uh, uh, or the context that he's specifying is actually in agreement with what the previous sutras actually say. So, uh, that is uh, quite valid. Uh, one more important point is Gambhirananda also clarifies that another Upanishadic text in this context means another passage. And it turns out, based on Sankara's Bhasya, that it is referring to another passage in Chandogya Upanishad. Now why does, uh, they, why do they use the word another here, another Upanishadic text? Because Shankara refers to Chandogya Upanishad in his Bhasya on previous sutras and he refers to a different passage from Chandogya Upanishad uh, in his Bhasya on this particular sutra. So in that sense, the word text here has nothing to do with knowledge uh, source uh, uh, where all knowledge pre-exists. So, so based on this, we can say that neither Satkaryavada, Sutra or Shankara's Hasya even remotely suggest that knowledge pre-exists in text. So, um, I have no idea how Polak sees reasoning, his, uh, sees uh, textual material uh, uh, in this particular dis discussion. Now, Claim number one uh, can be looked at in another different way using uh, the concept of pramana. And uh, our refutation here is pramana and not text are the means and the authority of knowledge. So knowledge of pramana has only one valid means. Uh, we call that pramana, the means of knowledge. So there cannot be multiple means and that one means becomes the authority. There are three valid means of knowledge that are relevant in this discussion. They are direct perception, pratyaksh pramana, inference or anvana, and authority to testimony. 
which we call text in this uh, paper of Polarks. Now, critical to, you know, we won't get into details of Pramana theory here, but critical to highlight three more important points. The first one is Pramana cannot depend on other Pramanas. So, there can only be uh, one means of knowledge, and these means of knowledge have to be independent of each other. And that one independent Pramana will be the authority of a given Pramana. An obvious example to give based on our personal uh, experiences is one like this. If house is on fire, we don't need to wait to look up a text to confirm it. We can run to the exit. Now, human knowledge cannot grow without authoritative testimony. This is our own personal experience. Each and every person cannot simply rediscover every scientific claim, for example. So, authoritative testimony is something very important, and uh, we need to consider that as we look at uh, Pollock's uh, commentary on this. Now, claim number two says that Shastras of practice claim to be eternal text from their, from their respective domains, and that is wrong because Indian tradition is very clear on boundaries of authority of knowledge. Uh, an exemplary discussion of this topic is by uh, uh, Adi Shankara himself in his Bhasya of uh, Bhagavad Gita 18.66, where he says, a hundred Shrutis may declare that fire is cold or that it is dark, still they possess no authority in the matter. Shankara actually goes on to say that authority in this case belongs to direct perception. Surti cannot simply claim any authority here. So the important takeaway here is that the issue is not whether all knowledge is in text, but whether texts have authority on all knowledge. And Shankara is saying emphatically that it is not, it does not. A second point worth mentioning is that uh, Indian intellectual tradition places two conditions on revealed truth. Uh, this comes from Kiriana's uh, wonderful book. And, and the two conditions are, the first one is, the revealed truth should be extra-empirical, alaukika. It needs to be unattainable through other pramanas. So again, this is a point about independence of pramanas. And the second criteria condition is, Revealed truth should not be contradicted either by other pramanas, for example, our own direct perceptual experiences or reasoning, or by itself, abhavita. So these are two very important conditions that uh, we see our Indian intellectual tradition historically use in testing revealed truth. Claim number two that Shastras of practice claim to get another text. You say is wrong because authoritative instruction according to Charitra Samhita does not mean a beginningless text. Pollock selectively quotes from Charitra Samhita as we saw. It, it appears as if Charitra Samhita is placing itself above direct perception and reasoning. And it appears to say that direct perception and reasoning have nothing to do but merely examine knowledge in authoritative instruction. 
but that is a mistake that we do because Olaf selectively picked a small code. But if we go on to see what Chakta Sanghita says, it, for example, gives a very clear definition of what authoritative instruction is. It says it comes from authoritative persons, it doesn't come from some eternal text, it comes from authoritative persons. It says authoritative persons are those who possess undisputed knowledge. And it says that these people should have good memory and are not affected by irrational and subjective factors. There is simply no scope for interpreting this to mean unbroken instruction or some prior beginningless text as Pollock seems to infer. In fact, contrary to Pollock's presentation, Chelsea Samhita is practical to its core. It says, for example, that all three pramanas, direct, perce uh, direct, uh, direct perception, inference and authoritative instruction are needed to do diagnosis. It very clearly says that. In fact, it says for a competent person, authoritative instruction is optional, but not direct perception and inference. So clearly, Polak has selectively picked some text from Charita Samhita and left out a whole lot of important text to misrepresent it. But uh, before I move on, while we establish that the source of uh, authoritative instruction is uh, human beings and or, or competent uh, authoritative persons, we bring ourselves a, a new problem and that is if authoritative instruction is from people, source of that knowledge should be traceable to direct perception and inference as Polak pointed out. So how then can Charka Samhita claim to be a Pramana? Is Charka Samhita stuck in a paradox as Polak says? We address that point next. So there is really no paradox in saying that authoritative instruction is an independent pramana. In fact, even if we look at contemporary philosophy of medicine, they clearly hold that authoritative testimony is indeed an independent pramana. And a particularly interesting book is uh, The Handbook of Analytical Philosophy of Medicine by Sadiq Zadeh who has been working on this research for the last 30 years, so it's written quite extensively. And he makes commentary that sounds like he took right out of our own uh, intellectual tradition. You know, for example, he says, a medical journal article that multi-authored these days can have as many as 100 authors or even more. Each member of the research team is told by other members that things are such and such. There is no way that any one of these authors can go and check the actual details of every one of them. They simply have to take the testimony to be true. Even in lab research, the primary source of modern scientific knowledge, there is no escape from reliance on prior testimony. We cannot go into a lab and start doing experiments or doing research without taking prior knowledge into account. And that's what we mean by prior testimony. And source of testimonial knowledge, and this is a very interesting and important point, is not experience, memory, or reasoning, but a community. So it is a social society that is providing the source, not uh, direct perception or reasoning. So we cannot trace all the way back down to that level because that information will simply be not there. So testimonial knowledge then cannot be uh, reduced to evidential knowledge. In fact, uh, 
Sadiq Zadik goes on to say uh, in his book that without testimonial knowledge, medical knowledge as we know simply could not exist. So what that means is, yes, authoritative instruction does not need to be in beginningless text in order for it to be an independent pramana. It can come from competent persons, that is fine, but it is still a valid pramana. Now, Chirka Samhita claims divine origin, so we need to address that topic as well. And the point here uh, is that it's really not a practical issue anymore. Why? Because the claim of divine origin is not necessary for Chirka Samhita to be an authoritative testimony, as we just discussed. Now, th does the claim of divine origin mean that it cannot be questioned? Clearly not. Again, Chirka Samhita tells us that authoritative instruction is from competent man and knowledge from man can be revised and updated. So there is nothing that says that it cannot be questioned. So this claim of divine origin is not uh, important to establish its importance. So then why claim a divine origin? And at least I personally see three reasons in three different ways. One is it, they are merely asserting Sakaryavada, not just effect, even causal knowledge inheres in cause. In fact, all knowledge, as with all matter, inheres in Brahman. So claiming divine origin is just a restatement of Sakaryavada. The second reason is cultural respect for knowledge. Indian culture is an intellectual culture, it respects knowledge. So no surprise that knowledge is treated as divine in origin. And finally, an instrumental value. Claiming divine origin ensures that its role, role as a pramana is recognized and respected. So, in conclusion, pramana is the authority of knowledge, not text. Shruti texts are not authority of knowledge of practice. It is whichever pramana uh, is responsible for that particular prama, that is the authority of knowledge. Direct perception, inference and authoritative testimony are all indispensable means of uh, practical knowledge. Shastras of practice are authoritative testimonies, uh, shastras such as Charta Samhita and Shusruta Samhita. Collective human knowledge, uh, for example, of medicine, cannot grow without authoritative testimony. Authoritative testimonies are ultimately human and subject to corrections, revisions and additions. I don't think Indian intellectual tradition has any issue with that as far as sastras of practice are concerned. So considering knowledge to be divine is a testament to an intellectual culture. To read something else into it is uh, just a travesty. So that concludes my presentation for this morning. Excellent. Thank you for the session.